Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Promise Witness Remembrance, which opened yesterday at the Speed Art Museum. My guest this week is Allison Glenn, a curator at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who has organized Promise Witness Remembrance for the Speed and for Louisville. Glenn's exhibition reflects on the life of Breonna Taylor, an emergency medical technician who was killed by Louisville police and the subsequent year of protests and remembrance. Included within the exhibition is artist Amy Sherald's 2020 portrait of Taylor, which the Speed and the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture have recently co-acquired. Promise is on view at the Speed through June 6th. Many of the artists in the exhibition are past Man Podcast guests. We'll have links to those episodes on manpodcast.com. You may recall that critic Nzinga Simmons and I discussed the Vanity Fair issue that first published Sherald's Taylor portrait last year. We'll have a link to that program, too. On the second segment, Jeffrey Richmond Mole and I discuss magic realism at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. As always, if you enjoy the program, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. This is especially true for you Apple Podcasts users. It's been a while since our last review there, y'all, so help us out. And please tell a friend and share the show on your socials, especially this week. Allison Glenn, after the break. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu palmyra. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020 Aversion in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in LA 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. And we're back. Allison Glenn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. American artists routinely address the present in their work and have pretty much since the 1840s. But just as routinely, American art museums and American Kunsthals generally don't. They generally don't organize shows around or even collection installations around current events. So the speed is, and you are the curator doing it. How did that happen? How did a show around the aftermath of Breonna Taylor's murder come to be? Well, it started with Amy Sherald. Amy Sherald is most definitely the architect. Insofar as after she painted the portrait of Breonna Taylor, 
she was very much interested in how the portrait could have a life after it was on the cover, how it could actually be seen, not in a digital format, but as a painting. And simultaneously, as I understand it, Stephen Riley, the executive director of the Speed Museum, was also very much interested in bringing the painting to Louisville. So they came together and Stephen reached out to me via email. I hadn't met Stephen before. Uh, Of course, I, I knew who he was. I've known Amy for years, at least half a decade. And he introduced himself, said what he was looking to do, and said that he had received, you know, recommendations from a few people in the field and that if I was willing to accept the invitation to think through this with the Speed Museum, that one of the key constituents would be Tamika Palmer, who is Brianna Taylor's mother. And for me, the way the email was phrased, the way that he positioned key stakeholders, and the way that he just kind of blindly sent me an email, it all felt good. It all felt right. Most importantly, you know, to to tackle a project of this scale, which at that point, the things that we knew were that the portrait was going to be coming to Louisville. We knew that the Ford Foundation was going to be funding whatever happened around the portrait. And then you know, come to find out after I approved or after I said yes, and then my institution approved me doing this kind of special project. I should jump in and note that you are on staff at Crystal Bridges. So you're working at an institution that is not yours. Yes. Yes. I'm associate curator of contemporary art at Crystal Bridges, where I've been for a little over three years. Once we figured all that out, Amy and I had a conversation and I came to find out that There was work being done to have the painting co-acquired by the Speed Art Museum and the Smithsonian and the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And so that is how it came to be. And that really, having all that information early on and understanding some of the aims and goals of the institution and understanding the aims and goals that Amy had, that, that is how, that's the genesis of this project. Amy Sherald was on the program in 2019. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. We'll also have a link to my conversation with Nzinga Simmons from last year. She and I talked on the occasion of the paintings landing on the cover of Vanity Fair and particularly about the deeply problematic way the museum and its staff presented it in the magazine's pages, which makes me all the more excited that it's now going to be visible on walls and not not only in print. You mentioned Ms. Palmer. How was she involved in the show? How did you engage, how did you and the museum engage with her? Yes. So one of the first things I did was have a conversation with her. And I really wanted to understand what she felt this exhibition could do, how she saw it representing her daughter's legacy, what some of you know her ambitions were. And I asked her, I sent her a text message and asked her this. And she replied with a a kind of a paragraph long text message. And from that message, I interpreted the curatorial framework and the thematic groupings. And so promise, witness, remembrance really comes out of the framework of the goals and ambitions of this, this kind of narrative as it relates to her daughter's life. I am now picturing the way in which that text message is entering the the, the museum's archives. I'm sure there's a framework for that too. So from that 
message and that idea or those ideas, how did you go about putting together a checklist that would be the thing that we both represent ideas that interested you, ideas that interested Ms. Palmer, and that would work on walls? I mean, the first thing I did was then, once I had a sense of what what the kind of the goals were from Brianna's mother's position, I understood the goals from the Speed's position. I began to build out ideas of how I could connect to the collection, how I could connect to contemporary artist practices. And simultaneously, I began building a national panel of advisors. And this national panel was really important because for many reasons, but being a, a guest curator in an institution in a city that I'm becoming familiar with, having a kind of purview and perspective that is outside of a community that spent over a year grieving and protesting and really feeling that at the end of the day, the, the results of the protests and the results of the grand jury's decision didn't go as perhaps they would have wanted. And so there's this sense of injustice, not only in the act, but also injustice in the grand jury's decision. And so I wanted to be sure that I was approaching this conversation with a lot of care. And to do that, I knew that I needed to build a team, a team that I could consult with, a team that knew me, felt comfortable, perhaps pointing out areas of strength in my curatorial framework and checklist, and also areas of perhaps maybe blind spots or, or areas for growth. I wanted a team. And so every different manifestation of the checklist, and there were probably 10 different directions it could have gone, was really kind of considered broadly by this team. And then it was also considered by the Louisville Steering Committee. And I just, I kind of pinged back and forth between Ms. Palmer, the steering committee, the national panel, my work, Amy. So it was just, it was, it was a kind of a constant conversation. And that process was very generative. And I'm glad that it was because this checklist needed to be completed in no time. I was thinking about that. Yeah, no time. <laughs> and, and it was. And I think, you know, there's a big part of me that I, I just, it, it came together in a way that, Looking back on it, I think if I was assessing it and not just working, I might have been scared. But we knew the end goal, and it just was about getting it done and getting it done in time for the opening. And, you know, I think to talk about the checklist specifically, there are a couple works that I can't believe we pulled off these loans. And one is Terry Atkins' Muffled Drums. <laughs> you know, it was, um, it was honestly conversations, relationships, but also a lot of luck and timing that this work is stateside and was in between venues in the United States. And therefore we could borrow it. And perhaps, of course, it's better than putting it in storage, you know, to be able to show this work in Louisville, but perhaps that wouldn't be possible had it not already been here. The work is in the collection of the Tate and it was in the U.S. because it was in the Terry Adkins survey at the Pulitzer, which was featured on the Man Podcast a few months ago. We'll have a link to that, too. <laughs> you know, other than the Sherald, of course. Was there a core work or two around which the conceptions of the show, you know, that became core to your conceptions of the show, or, or, or I guess not? No. I mean, you know, when I, there were a lot of, it was more like I approached this 
understanding kind of the the end of the story, right? So at the time that I'm building the checklist, no one knows the exhibition is happening. People don't know what's happening with the portrait, you know, broadly in the art world or publicly. And also no one knows at this point that the work is being co-acquired. And so I used a lot of these things that I knew as frameworks, right? So having a conversation with the local and the national was going to reflect the way that the painting was going to have a life in Louisville and in D.C. Also, understanding that this hyper-local issue, which is essentially an issue of police brutality and gun violence in the city of Louisville, is not just a Louisville issue. It is a national issue in our country. And so, again, these frameworks of the local and the national, I'm thinking a lot about ideas of solidarity and ideas of support and So many of the artists that I invited to participate were eager and excited to provide works that hadn't been exhibited in Louisville before, had not been exhibited before, period. I think of someone like Bethany Collins, who was working on a new sound work for the Star Spangled Banner that was specifically, it was, she had plans to create it already, but it had not been produced. And it was specifically created within the framework and context of this exhibition. So there wasn't one work, but there there were some themes that began to emerge very quickly through those themes, the checklist built. Bethany Collins was on the Man Podcast a few months ago, too. We'll have a link to that as well on (laughs) manpodcast.com. One of the things that I see in the checklist, and I'll I'll note that as ever, we're taping with a curator before the curator has finished installing the show, is that it includes several big addresses of the idea of the American nation, thinking of works by by Bethany Collins, of course, but also Nari Ward. Why was starting there, if you will, something you wanted to do before kind of moving forward to 2020 and 2021? Well, I think it's important to understand, to understand this particular moment in time, we have to look back and understand other moments in time, right? And hinging on this idea that the family of Breonna Taylor has not gotten the justice they seek. We have to, from my perspective, this exhibition in this section aims to unpack perhaps how something like that could happen. And so looking at the promise, right? The promise of a life, the promise of a country, the promise of a nation and what the promise of a nation affords its citizens. And so really looking at four symbols of the United States, voters' rights, the preamble to the constitution, national anthems, and the military that upholds those rights. And really just thinking about how countries afford certain rights for certain people and others, perhaps not so much. One of the ways you make the history of the show addresses about more than a single event is through the inclusion of a work by John Cesare Goff. What is that work? What what did that work respond to or engage with? And why did you choose it? Yeah, so John Cesare Goff is, he's someone who's actually on the National Panel of Advisors. And I reached out to him early on uh, because I knew that he had made this work. And the work is called Site of Reckoning Battlefield. And it's a film created after the um, the shooting at the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And I, at first, I was introduced to John and his work through Prospect New Orleans. I was on the team for Prospect 4, which was curated by Trevor Schoonmaker. And John had just made this film. And it's about a five-minute film that 
is a is a portrait of a place. It's a portrait of a church after the shooting that killed eight parishioners and the Reverend Clementa Pickney. And John is this church is it's it's his community, and his father actually was interim preside he presided over the church in the interim as they were looking for a new pastor to lead the congregation. And the work is it's very powerful. The, the film itself is quite beautiful, and it's a different way to think about a portrait of a community. The song that accompanies the film is Sweet Honey in the Rock and Sonia Sanchez Stay in the Battlefield, which is, you know, part kind of like a gospel, you know, like an anthem for, for living and part kind of this, this real call. And it's, you know, it starts in this slow kind of processional where Sweet Honey in the Rock is is saying, you know, I'm going to stay in the battlefield. It's repeated over and over. And then, you know, I'm going to stay in the battlefield until I die. And then the next refrain is, I'm going to treat everybody right. And so there's there's a lot of very powerful message in the film, a very powerful message in the music that brings people through the galleries in this in this way that sets the tone for seeing the portrait, but also speaks to other kinds of portraits of communities that are dealing, have dealt with injustice. And John is on the national panel because he made this film and because of the success of the film and because of his his perspective in depicting his community during great turmoil and loss, I wanted his view, his opinion and his voice in the room as I was developing this exhibition that is attempting to look at communities in Louisville and communities across the United States. One of the things I see across the checklist is that you're avoiding merely being mournful, that, that you're playing dolar off of resilience. In addition to Goff's film, there are photographs by T.A. Arrow, and there are two installations, two works by, by Hank Willis Thomas. How did you try to find a balance between morning and going on and, and how do those works kind of play a role in that? You're absolutely right. It, the, all of the checklist does have a somber quality to it. It doesn't necessarily need nor want to be reflective of solely of trauma, right? We're, we're talking, again, going back to the portrait as the anchor, we're talking here about a person's life, 26 years of a person's life, not just the event that ended her life, but 26 years, right? And and I think that perspective and purview is something that was important to keep in mind. And the way that her mother and her family talked about her, see her, knew her, I, I didn't want the entire checklist to reflect only somberness, you know, but, but also at the same time, there are ways in which artists talk about these very somber issues. And, you know, Hank Willis Thomas is a great example. There are three works by Hank in the exhibition, actually. So the two works in in the Promise section are 15,433, which was made in 2019, and 19,281, which was made in 2020. And the titles of the works refer to the number of stars on these flags. The stars represent each person killed by gun violence in the United States in the year that they were made. And again, Hank is on the national panel, and I, I did make 
clear decision that the artists that were serving in the panel, I also wanted to include works of theirs in the exhibition. I included Hank for many reasons. Hank is such a guiding voice in conversations about the personal in the space of contemporary art. And he's been so just incredible in how he uses the space of his practice to talk about real societal issues in a way that is accessible and meaningful. I mentioned the photographs by T.A. Yarrow a moment ago. There are also photographs here by Eric Branch and Xavier Burrell. What work do they do within the show? What, who do they include and make part of the exhibition's narrative? The works, there are five Louisville photographers who documented the protests, and I included their work as an opportunity to reflect this contemporary moment. You know, again, the exhibition doesn't necessarily resolve. It doesn't provide, you know, a thought on and perhaps a way forward, but it does provide a space. The intention is to provide a space for other voices, right? So these five photographers spent a year documenting what was happening after Brianna Taylor was murdered. And I wanted to include those documents in the city because I wanted the city to feel that they were reflected in this exhibition. And so there's also, the, there's five photographers, John Cherry, Xavier Burrell, Eric Branch, T.A. Yero, and Tyler Girth. There are some, you know, meta narratives within the exhibition. Tyler Girth's photographs, it's a posthumous printing and posthumous exhibition. Tyler was murdered during the protests. And he was at a protest and was shot and killed. And John Cherry's, the photograph I chose from John Cherry is a portrait of Travis Nagy, who, as I understand it, was one of the young leaders of the protest movement. And he was shot and killed in an unrelated incident. So these meta narratives are also just looking at, again, these, these larger issues in the United States around gun violence, police brutality. And community response. Exactly. One of the things you were able to do in the show is make use of the Speed's own collection and in ways that seem to me to be really historically expanding, if you will. Two works in particular, um, Alorna Simpson from 1991, titled Same, and Sam Gilliam's Carousel Form 2, which of course is also in the Speed's collection. Something about Carousel Form 2 reminded me immediately of Norfolk Keels from 1999, at the Chrysler Museum, which is at the Chrysler Museum now, which is kind of an evocation of waves, the Chrysler, of course, being on the water there in Norfolk, and it's installed in the, the literal steel rafters of the Chrysler's building, so it evokes heaven, too. What did the Gilliam and the Simpson do for you, and was it important for you to include works from the Speeds collection? Absolutely, yeah. I definitely wanted to include works from the Speeds collection to be able to not only tell a story of how these works can be perhaps, to your point, contextualized in a different way in this place, but also to talk about the witness section, which is where we where we found ourselves. And so the witness section has more works, probably it's Gallery 2 has the most works in the whole exhibition. I wanted to think about who the audience is and that perhaps because the portrait has not been seen, the portrait of Brianna Taylor has not been seen by very many people, that there may be a lot of first-time museum goers that are coming to the exhibition to see the portrait. And so I wanted to start thinking about how I was talking to them through the exhibition and how the artworks were talking to them. And so the witness section, it 
talks about how artists help us understand this contemporary moment and how the contemporary moment is right now. But the contemporary moment was also in 1969 when Sam Gilliam created Carousel Form 2. And at that time, from my perspective, Sam making a decision to work with an abstraction, to make a decision to not be confined to the, the canvas in traditional forms is a way of kind of a protest in itself, right? It's a way of witnessing the expectations of representation that perhaps were placed on him as a black male painter and his complete refusal or denial of this expectation in favor of making paintings like Carousel Form 2 that <laughs> defy everything. You know, they're the, the drape, the, the, the parabola, the ways that a viewer's sight lines the way that you're kind of implicated by walking around this draped canvas, the, the way that your body and your eye understands painting in that space is expanded upon. This is, I, I found out yesterday from the registrar that the way that we've installed it, this is the first time it's been in, installed in a way that you can walk all the way around it. And so that's very exciting. So it's it's operating as a sculpture, which I think it, it definitely lives in the space in between sculpture and painting. And there's a little, there's a few winks in this exhibition. And so one of them is that Carousel Form 2 was on the cover of Art in America in September, October of 1970. And it was accompanied by an article titled Black Art in America. And so at that moment, this painting was on the cover of a magazine that was commenting on the art of our time specifically made by Black artists. And of course, the Sherald is on the cover of Vanity Fair. So there's this wink to, you know, paintings on the cover of publications, this idea of painting circulating. And of course, you know, Sam is working in abstraction and Amy representation are, uh, you know. And so there's a there's a conversation there that that I'm setting up. And Sam Gilliam is, I mean, Sam Gilliam is genius. One other note about Gilliam and his work in in this period, and by this period, I mean the period around which he's making Carousel Form too. From the late 1860s to the early 1870s, each year, Gilliam made a painting that referenced the assassination of Martin Luther King. I think a couple of them are in private collections. One's at the Studio Museum, one's at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, one's at the Stanley at the University of Iowa, and I think I'm forgetting one. But so there's another link there, the, this use of painterly language to address a national trauma and a horrific murder. And the Lorna Simpson seems to me to be a work that argues for both empathy and the broadest possible fellowship with Ms. Taylor and what happened next. Right. I mean, it's the way that I've interpreted The Simpson is I thought a lot about the articles that I read, the interviews of Miss Palmer and listening to the local community and understanding how Brianna Taylor was depicted by the media early on. And there's the so there's a rhythmic repeated image of the backs of two women with their hair braided together. And the two women frame the edges of the series of color Polaroids. Their hair is braided together. You cannot see their facial features. Their skin tones are roughly the same. In some images, one woman is wearing a shirt, the other one is not. And it, for me, points to this idea of assumptions that are made about certain people and certain bodies based on how people look. 
um, it's really quite straightforward, right? And that the within these series of stacked Polaroids, the artist has placed text. And so some of the text is, we're disliked for the same reasons. We're not related. Read the news account and knew it could have easily been them. And I don't really think I have to explain the, the connections there. We've been talking about the Sherald um, while talking around the Sherald. How have you installed it? What have you installed it to be in dialogue with? And how have you installed it to be, if you will, encountered by visitors? So there was a lot of discussion with the national panel early on about where I was going to place the Sherald and why. And I knew that I wanted it to be in the final gallery. So gallery five is where the Sherald is placed. And I, I knew I wanted it to be by itself. I kind of knew that. I had some ideas of other works I wanted to be in conversation with, perhaps in that gallery. But after speaking with the panel, at first I wanted to have a reveal was really important to me. So I wanted viewers to be walking through the exhibition and really wanting to, where is the Amy Sherald? Turn a corner and it's there. And then after discussions with the panel, it became clear that a really great impact would be to see the Sherald the minute you walk into the galleries. So when you walk into the, the old speed building, you will see the Sherald directly in front of you at the end of the series of galleries that are set up. So if you came here to see the portrait, you, you know exactly where it is. You can walk straight through the center of the different galleries and spend time with the portrait. There is also an intent there to connect visually to the portrait. So as you go around these rectangular galleries that are laid out in a linear fashion because of the architecture of, of the, the original building, you will always return to the Sherald and it kind of brings you through the space. And it's really about the portrait of Brianna Taylor being the kind of guiding light that brings you through the exhibition. And it really points to how the painting is the anchor and how the painting is the anchor because it's a portrait of a woman who lived in Louisville, whose family lives in Louisville. It's the reason why the show is happening. And so when we're, Amy tends to hang her paintings a little bit lower and I'm hoping that we can hang this painting a bit higher so that it has this kind of regalness, this air of the painting being elevated in a sense. And in, so in that gallery is just the painting. And then on the opposite walls is a timeline. And I, I knew early on that I wanted a timeline to connect to the story of Brianna Taylor and to the story of the protests. And I thought maybe perhaps the timeline would be woven through the galleries in this, you know, in some sort of design fashion. So when I was presenting the curatorial framework to Ms. Palmer, I suggested, I said, you know, I'd love to have a timeline. I said, I don't think I should write it. I'm not the person, but I have some suggestions from the steering committee. What do you think? And she volunteered herself. She said, I'll write it. And I didn't want to put that on her. I, she's been such a wonderful guiding voice, but I didn't want to put any additional work on her, but she, she volunteered and it actually worked out perfectly because it is the story of Brianna Taylor's life as told by her mother. And so the important moments are identified because her mother has identified them as important moments and it's in her mother's voice. We had a lot of conversations about you know, continue to have a lot of conversations about how this exhibition is also decentering. The galleries are the Dutch and Flemish collection, which I also 
understand, and I'm learning a lot about how internationally this bead is recognized for their Dutch Masters collection. Yeah, let me let me jump in for just a sec. I think you're saying that these were the galleries or are typically the galleries of the Dutch and Flemish collection. They're they're not there now during your show. Yes, because we deinstalled all of the work, which has never happened. So there's a, an act of decentering there to deinstall that collection. There is an act of decentering by putting Ms. Palmer's voice, by offering the space for her voice and the story she wants to tell it in the fifth gallery where the painting of her daughter is. You know, so these gestures are important and these gestures are ways of thinking about how museums can provide space for distinctly different publics, communities, and voices. There's also a 1993 Carrie James Marshall in the show from his Lost Boys series. Where is it in the show and how do you, or did you think of it as, as working as, counterpart's not the right word, but maybe as being in dialogue with, with the Sherald? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Carrie James Marshall is in a section called Remembrance, which includes work by Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, Nick Cave, John Cesare Goff, and Amy Sherald. And in this section, I wanted to include artists who have created works that are in either direct reference to incidences of police brutality and or gun violence in Black and brown communities or broadly. And this Carrie James Marshall is... It's one of his works from his Lost Boys series, where he represents America as a place where oppression, incarceration, and death deprive young Black men of the opportunity to grow up. And so the Lost Boys, the title is taken from Barry's book, Peter Pan, of course. And the reason to include Marshall in this section is also that Amy speaks often about the the rich, dark skin tones that Keir James Marshall uses when depicting people. And in a similar fashion, Amy has this grisaille, this kind of gray tone that she uses to depict people and skin tones. And so there's there's a nod to the way that Carrie James has influenced someone like Amy Sherald, the way that this portrait represents for Marshall young Black men broadly, and how it's in dialogue with other artists who have made work in homage to loss. If memory serves, Cheryl discussed that that very thing when she was on the program in 2019. So if listeners want to go back and hear that, we'll, we'll make that easy to do on the show page. We talked a little bit earlier about resilience and optimism and how you work to make sure that the show was, was open corridors rather than a closed room. And there are two works that, that jump out at me as doing a lot of that work. One is a Nick Cave, Unarmed from 2018. Another is an Alicia Wormsley. Am I reading their inclusion correctly? Are they are they offering ways forward and upward? Well, you know that when you say forward and upward, I think of the Alicia Wormsley. So this particular text is taken from a billboard that the artist installed in Pittsburgh in a time when an area of town was being gentrified rapidly and people were being pushed out and primarily it was the black community. And so this billboard was was installed and it was eventually deinstalled by developers who felt that the presence of the statement was an affront to the work that they were trying to do. And the irony is so thick. <laughs> so 
Alicia has since offered this text in multiple manifestations. It's been on billboards. It's you know, it's been on lawn signs. And I wanted to actually run this kind of like ticker tape across the, the top of the second floor galleries. And maybe ticker tape isn't the right isn't the right way to describe it, but I think of a Jenny Holzer, right? So, but an, an analog Holzer or a Lawrence Wiener or Barbara Kruger or Felix Gonzalez Torres. So that gesture of a repeated text or a text that engages with the interior architecture of a space in non-traditional ways. And so these, this sentence, you look up when you walk into gallery two and you're looking about 20 feet up in the air and you see this sentence repeated across the entirety of the second gallery. And what's really wonderful, it's the same gallery that the Gilliam is hung in, which also offers a, a way forward. It offers some lightness, exuberance, you know, an opportunity to think about how this idea of making your own way can be interpreted in many forms. But I love the way that the, the Gilliam frames the sentence. So there are also, there are ways that artworks interrupt the sightline. And depending on where your body is, you see different fragments of the sentence. The sentence is also seen from the later galleries. When you turn around, there's columns, marble columns, and we have, you know, 22 foot ceilings, but the columns frame the sentence and also create different ways that you see these words. And, and so it offers an opportunity to imagine different frameworks, right? The, the ways that the different works disrupt the sightline of the Wormsley offers an opportunity to think about different frameworks and different perspectives. It also, it, you know, it's kind of like the language of protest. So it's speaking a lot to, to protest to occupation of a site. And again, pointing back to what these galleries typically, how they typically operate at the Speed Museum and how they're operating here. And the cave is pretty directly memorial. Exactly. So you mentioned a moment ago that the, the exhibition, as well as sightlines through the museum, build to the Sherald. How do people exit the show? How will people exit the show? <laughs> right. So people will spend time in the gallery with the Sherald and with the timeline. And then there's an opportunity to exit and walk down a beautifully lit staircase. So lots of natural lights coming in and you walk down the stairs and on your sight line is Hank Willis Thomas's neon that says, remember me. So you've just le left this gallery of the portrait of Brianna. You hear John Cesare Goff and Sweet Honey in the Rock stay on the battlefield. And then you see a neon that says, remember me. You walk down the stairs and Khalil Joseph's Black News is on view. And this is, it's intentional for, for many reasons. Khalil's work is, you know, he calls it conceptual journalism, and it is a continuously updated stream. For us, we'll update it, I think, twice within the space of the exhibition, but it includes cell phone videos, Instagram stories, photographs, archival footage, newsreels that Joseph and other fugitive newscasters collage together in an unending Black news stream. And so it carves out an actual and conceptual space to center Blackness, providing a remedy to the endless barrage of media inaccurately portraying Black life, culture, and people. And so it imagines a kind of, it imagines a space, it imagines a future, it imagines a site that centers and decenters at the same time. 
so the, the intention of having that work there is, again, to provide, again, another framework or the opportunity to think about how artists help us understand the contemporary moment and perhaps imagine a future space that negates some things in favor of others. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. There's a real strong strain of those ideas in the show. Amy Sherald's work does a lot of that same centering and and continuation work, if you will. And it's a real strain of recent Black contemporary art. I think of Martine Sims, for example. Allison Glenn, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tyler. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side by side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. Artist Michael Rakowitz tackles the complex questions of history, heritage, and identity. The 2020 Nasher Prize honors his pioneering sculpture, like The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, which responds to the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. Experience the work of Michael Rakowitz in person at the Nasher Sculpture Center, on view now through April 2021. Book a ticket in advance at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Jeffrey Richmond Mole, who joins me to discuss Extraordinary Magic, Mystery, and Imagination in American Art at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. The exhibition surveys American artists who rejected abstraction to make representational, often hyper real paintings that address the strangeness of changing, churning American life in the mid 20th century. The exhibition is on view through June 13th. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by GMOA. Amazon offers it for about 50 bucks, and of course, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Jeffrey Richmond Mole, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. In 1943, in Richmond, Virginia, Clifford Still painted his first huge mature abstractions, the first abstract expressionist paintings. And that same year, Jackson Pollock made what was then a one-off painting cum decoration for Peggy Guggenheim, picture known today as Mural, the great painting at the University of Iowa's Stanley Museum of Art, which has been on tour around the U.S. for the last few years as that museum built its new building. So that same year, 1943, the Museum of Modern Art launched a show titled American Realists and Magic Realists. What was this thing that MoMA called magic realism? Magic realism has precedent in European art, for sure. The the movement that we call new objectivity or the Neue Sacklichkeit that's emerging in Germany in the 1920s is also called Magischer Realismus. You have European surrealism, which is circulating about in Europe and making its way to the United States in the 1930s. But it wasn't until 1943, as you said at MoMA's show, that the idea of magic realism was was applied to the art of the United States. And this comes as part of this longer tradition at MoMA of trying to identify and characterize various aspects of American modernism. 
it was part of Dorothy Miller's American series. It's also called Americans 1943. But clearly you can see Alfred Barr, Dorothy Miller, and then their consultant really in that era, Lincoln Kirstein, the critic and collector, coming together to try to identify what they saw as kind of a stylistic attitude or a, a new trend that was emerging in that moment in the art of the United States and trying to give it a name. They didn't think surrealism worked, so they turned to, to magic realism despite internal debate. And Barr, the director, Miller, Miller the curator, in, in their catalog that accompanied the show, they give various kind of ways to understand magic realism. They, they highlight the fact that these artists are making pictures of sharp focus and precise representation. They are using an exacting kind of realistic technique. But they're also using those tools to try, as, as Barr says in, in the book, to try to make plausible and convincing, improbable, dreamlike, or fantastic visions. So, so magic realism is, I never call it a movement because it was not a concerted movement. It was, again, a kind of phenomenon or, or, or attitude. But magic realism at its heart is, a, is about this kind of tension between the magical and the realistic and, and really accentuates this kind of tension that exists between a work of art and the world in a way that's part of the, the entire tradition of realism, but is, is again kind of reveling in that kind of tension between magic and reality, uh, or as, as I call it in my show, the ordinary and the, the extraordinary. And it, it takes many forms. It's immediately criticized as being too broad, too vague. Critics call it a kind of crazy quilt approach to realism. But it's this attempt, again, to sort of hazard a, a way of defining this, this phenomenon that, that MoMA was observing and trying to place into these longer traditions of modernism that, that is the, the heart of, of their project at that time. One way of thinking about it is that surrealism, you know, literally meant hyper-real, whereas we've come to think of surrealism as meaning unreal, while still referencing the real, surrealism meant the most real. And, and I think that definition and lineage is really present and shared amongst most of the artists in, in your show. We'll get to a few in, the, in, in a minute. I mentioned Still and Pollock a moment ago. Are what they were doing and what the magic realists were doing different branches of a tree? I say immediately regretting the metaphor. <laughs> You know, do they have similar roots and sources and origins? And it's just that certain painters went in different directions with those sources? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, Ad Reinhardt's famous tree that he used to kind of create that's, that's a, a new... <laughs> <laughs> right. He he puts all those abstractionists on on these, you know, healthy growing branches and then Barry's, Paul Cadmus, Jared French, George Tooker, uh, even Andrew Wyeth, who can sometimes come into the this circle of artists, puts them in the graveyard at the feet of the tree. But I, I mean, I think certainly what is important to realize, and you mentioned surrealism as almost the, the way that we think about it today as a misinterpretation of the true meaning of the word, 
the magic realists were responding, I think, to the same sorts of conditions of a of an of an unstable world after you know, during and after World War II that the abstract painters like Pollock most famously were responding to you know, what the the traumas of war and then and then its aftermath and the kind of social conditions that I think are very much at the heart of of abstract art though you know more so the abstract expressionists that we've come to add to the canon namely you know women and and, and African American artists who are working in that mode but all of them trying to express I think something both highly personal and inwardly reflective, but also looking to see how sort of psychological experience, or even as Lincoln Kirstein redefines magic realism as symbolic realism, how this sort of inward experience of, of symbols comes to exist in the world. And that's that's why, you know, I again avoid the term magic realism in the title for the show and as, as much as possible in a way because it's really more about how the magic and mystery and the supernatural break forth into the ordinary world that these artists are, are interested in. How, does, uh, how do we look at reality in everyday life and see in it something fantastical, whether in this kind of wondrous way or in a sort of bizarre, disquieting, even disturbing way? And so I think you're right. I mean, I think the problem is that we see the magic realists and their kind of traditional academic way of working and immediately the knee jerk is to characterize it as retrograde in contrast to abstract art. When in fact, again, these are sort of parallel courses through the same world. I, you know, that's interesting because I, this is a rare example of an exhibition that I've seen myself before reading the catalog, and, and indeed before taping this segment. Neither of those things, especially in the last year, happened very often. But when I walked out of the show, I thought to myself, these paintings are enormously more contemporary and more relevant in both style and subject than that other leading painting of, of that same time, gestural abstraction, which to me anyway, this is a slight non sequitur, but, but, but to me just feels increasingly unimportant are increasingly second tier. And I think there are a number of artists where you see in the show where you see them sort of melding multiple so-called styles or traditions that where an artist like Peter Bloom, who is known, who resisted magic realism as a, as a sort of category for his work because he saw his approach to painting as this kind of eclectic, what he called catenation approach, this kind of combination of cubism and precisionism and in some ways abstraction in different moments in his pictures or or an artist like Helen Lundeberg who I think becomes so much better known as an abstract painter as her career continues but who has this earlier moment reflected in the exhibition in a work like Selma where you see this kind of hinge between her her representational work with this imagined colorized portrait of her mother on the wall but a window out into this this bleak landscape that looks so much like her abstract work to come. Same surface too. I mean, the the her, her surfaces are pretty unique, and her surface in that representational painting reminded me a lot of where she she goes in the years after. 
you know, your catalog essay kind of started with that observation I made a moment ago. It's just that I didn't know you'd been there months before I had because I saw the show before I read the catalog. What are some of the ways in which painters in your show, painters such as Huey Lee Smith or Jared French or Eldizer Corder, address issues that were issues when they were making those paintings and issues that are still with us now? Reasons that these paintings still feel pretty fresh, at least to me. Well, as you said, I was writing this catalog in the midst of COVID-19, and obviously we're still in that moment, but beginning my essay in you know March, April of 2020, and as I talk about in, in the essay in the book, I saw Louis Guglielmi's Tenements painting in a completely different light, a, a painting that's in our own permanent collection. It was sort of one of the catalysts for this show because Guglielmi is dealing with urban poverty, health disparities, premature death. And in a way, you know, I couldn't look at that painting without thinking about this virus that was ravaging American cities, especially New York, in that same moment, the site, uh, the subject of, of Guglielmi's tenements. I should jump in to point out there are three coffin-like forms in the foreground of the painting, too. What we'll have the painting on manpodcast.com, of course. Right. And, and as, I, as I mentioned in the essay, I mean, I, seeing those coffins on the sidewalk, immediately I connected that to these images circulating in the news media of gurneys, draped gurneys on the sidewalks of New York City in the early days of the height of the virus. And we've come to see the virus, too, as something that has really sort of accentuated the health disparities between various communities and, and sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds. This is the same sort of commentary that Guglielmi is making about immigrant populations and marginalized populations in New York City in the 1930s. You mentioned Huey Lee Smith and this kind of desolate urban landscape that he paints in Contemplating My Future, which is also in the show. And thinking about not only that, that the kind of bleak lakeside cityscape that, that, that he's painting, but also that title where he's positioned this figure at a crossroads. And he's positioned the figure, not coincidentally, beneath a fractured fragment of a of a sign above him that just begins with the words Lee and then a hyphen SM to reference his own name, Lee Smith. I, I couldn't help but see that painting in light of this ongoing struggle <laughs> that we have, these ongoing tensions and the the fact that America is still reckoning with the legacy of of, of slavery and racism, and thinking about that painting as a, as a cost, crossroads too, because these are works that are engaged in the past, but they're also looking to the future and trying to sort of imagine a future for their own moment. And yet Lee Smith is sort of saying, this is a figure almost without a future. There's, no, there's, there's sort of no future offered to him in the composition, except to travel one desolate road or another. And so I, you know, I, I think that is that that only underscores the fact that this work, you know, we 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 talk about. You mentioned surrealism as this kind of genre that we see as a world of the mind, divorced from 
the real in a way as sort of and magic realism can be easily interpreted as a, a kind of escape from reality but in fact it can be used to redirect us to our own ordinary existence and potentially give us the tools to imagine a new world for ourselves if that's if that's possible sometimes to sort of <laughs> uh, show the world as stubbornly unavoidable in its circumstances in certain pictures, but there are some that sort of say this is this is not only a reference to the world as it is, but but an attempt to show the world as it the world as it could be. And I, th I think in, in all those ways, it were were sort of these works always root us in in the world where we exist. You know, the last two paintings you've brought up, both Tenements, the Guglielmi, and Huey Lee Smith's Contemplating My Future, are red, white, and blue paintings. They are, they're, they're, they are paintings that are of scenes, but that are pointedly and obviously intentionally using the national colors. Lots of work in this show doesn't just address the idea of the American nation, but particularly the condition of, of, of the American nation. Uh, I guess two things. One, what are some of the other ways in which painters in the show are, are addressing the condition and idea of the nation? And why are they doing it? Why now? What is, what is bringing them to the way America is then? To your first question, this is the challenge of how do I organize a show that is about this phenomenon in American art that exists because of an exhibition in 1943 and of a kind of curatorial decision <laughs> and the the role of certain critics and, and dealers and trying to codify this movement that doesn't actually exist. How do you create an exhibition out of that when the really magic realism is not a movement that can be traced in its typical, in the sort of typical chronology, right? So there was no way to organize the show chronologically. There was, it seemed to me that this is, this was an exhibition that need to be, needed to be presented thematically. Also thematically, because as we're saying, you know, this is, this is work that is touching on so many aspects of American culture and of really human existence at large. Uh, so how do we sort of carve this up to 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 grasp it coherently and to see these artists who are in some ways knowingly, but in many ways unknowingly addressing the same sorts of issues through similar sort of aesthetic means? And so, you know, we have we have the works that that engage racial tensions in, in mid mid 20th century America. We've already mentioned some, but but you also have people like. George Tooker and his partner, William Christopher, who, by the way, was William Christopher, who got George Tooker involved with the NAACP. And the two of them traveled together to Montgomery, Alabama, and marched with Martin Luther King, as well as artists like Andrew Wyeth, who I mentioned before, who sort of comes in and out of the magic realist category, but whose images of African-American figures like James Loper, a painting in the show, are addressing, you know, black experience in the mid 20th century. Loper being this kind of marginalized, almost eccentric figure around Chadsford, Pennsylvania, who is posed in, in, in Wyatt's painting of him beneath these two dangling grain scythes. And the, 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 these scythes that are above his head are a sort of typical magic realist gesture to tension and instability and the, this sort of threat of violence, but by, by placing Loper below it, 
this is to me comes to be this kind of commentary on the violence against black bodies throughout American history. And then you you have, I mean, Guglielmi again is sort of cl- tensions in 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 terms of class disparities and Honoré Scherer, who devotes her career really to painting the work and exalting the working class. But you also have artists who are using this kind of magic realist aesthetic to engage pressing issues about the environment, environmental crises. You mentioned Courtois' Southern Landscape, which has this this flooded out background and, and this resilient female figure standing before us holding a basket full of probably the only thing she could grab before fleeing from her house and gra- and and holding the crucifix uh, or the, the 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 cross necklace that she wears it's a painting that is about a specific event that Cortor witnessed uh, the flooding of the salt river in Kentucky on a, a trip through the american south but it's also as some have observed potentially a and being titled Southern Landscape and showing this flooded land behind her, this kind of hope for redemption and a, and a sort of a resurrection and a, a, a cleansing of the land that may be in this sort of imagined future, that landscape so fraught with hate and violence might be redeemed in almost like a, a, a biblical flood. So, I mean, there's there's really so much going on across the board, but it's all to sort of acknowledge that whether it's class or race or or the trauma of war or real real crises in the natural world in this time that that magic realism can be a tool to to sort of not only provide commentary but but to to almost provide a way forward in a way that you know abstraction is maybe not able to offer necessarily. Some might disagree. <laughs> you mentioned that Andrew Wyeth painting in, in, in the show. It also recalls for me the Sith or Scythe or however you say that word, you know, also reminds me of Winslow Homer's many paintings of reapers or referencing grain reapers, such as the veteran in a new field, the, the kind of Civil War concluding painting Homer painted in 1865 that's at the Met. Wyeth's painting in, in using that Sith or Scythe could also be said to reference the undone work of Reconstruction and the near century between the end of the Civil War and, and his 1850, no, I'm sorry, 1952 painting. Jeffrey Richmond Mall, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.